somehow humans overturned slavery against their own economic interest. And that is so encouraging. It means that even when it's hard, humans ultimately do the right thing. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saver. Hey, my name is Jerry Saver and you're listening to episode 43 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show, the podcast for and about the people creating a plant-based future and running vegan brands, where you can get inspiration and ideas, learn how they got to where they are, what's their approach and what works when you're setting up your own plant-based business. Joining me today is a special guest who probably needs no introduction, but just in case you're not familiar with Moby and his work, he's often referred to as one of the most influential electronic music artists of the 90s. His albums have sold over 20 million copies worldwide, and he's a devoted animal rights activist. But overall, I'd say he's a guy who's hard to label with just one thing. So we'll be talking about some of his past business experience today and about the upcoming Circle V Festival in LA, which will be his only live gig this year, and also a great opportunity to hear some amazing vegan musicians, talks from other activists, and of course, enjoy the vegan food and drinks in a beautiful environment. Right now, it's a pleasure to welcome Moby to the Plan-Based Entrepreneur Show. Before we dive in, Moby, um, just to give a little bit of context You've been vegan for like 30 years now. How how has that shaped your life and, and business path? Well, it's interesting. I mean, because like most people, I grew up with what I think of as that strange Western paradox where, you know, when I was a child growing up in the suburbs, I loved animals, but I also loved Burger King. And, you know, I loved rescue animals, but I also loved pepperoni pizza and bacon and hamburgers. And then when I was 19, I was petting a rescue cat that my mom and I had rescued. And suddenly I realized, like, this cat had two eyes and a central nervous system and a rich emotional life and a desire to avoid pain and suffering. And then I realized every animal with two eyes and a central nervous system has a rich emotional life and a desire to avoid pain and suffering. So, yeah, so I've been – that was over 30 years ago. So now I've been vegan for 30 years and – it's a very hard question to answer because veganism, animal activism has really affected every aspect of my life from like who I am physically, who I am spiritually, who I am emotionally, and also, you know, who I am as an entrepreneur and a member of this strange capitalist society. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of business Little Pine Restaurant is actually your your second foray into this restaurant scene. You opened the tea house in New York about what fifteen years ago, Teeny. Mm -hmm. um, are there any lessons from that first one that you put in practice when you opened this spot in LA? <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, also I have to be very clear. My entrepreneurialism with Little Pine is very strange because. Any profits that are generated by Little Pine go to animal rights organizations. So it's really more philanthropic in a way than entrepreneurialism or, or a hybrid of philanthropy and entrepreneurialism. So I guess the lessons that I learned from running Teeny in New York, the biggest lesson is that 
only a really dumb person would ever open a restaurant. <laughs> and so when I opened Little Pine, I sort of knew what I was getting into. I was like, you know what? This is going to be frustrating, time-consuming, incredibly aggravating at times. But ultimately, the reason I run Little Pine is to generate money for animal rights organizations, but also to represent veganism in what we'll think of as like a bricks and mortar way. Because veganism is very well, and animal activism are very well represented virtually. Amazing books, amazing documentaries, amazing activists posting online, but it's still sort of lacking in the bricks and mortar sense. Like there are a lot of vegan restaurants, but I wanted something that could also really appeal to non-vegans so that non-vegans could come in and have amazing wine and amazing cocktails and a wonderful dinner and leave feeling satisfied with a good impression of what veganism means. Yeah. And um, if I got the numbers correct from, um, from a past interview with you, I'd say you're doing quite well, even on the entrepreneurial side, because obviously, even though the, the profits go to, to animal rights organizations, you, you still have to make those profits somehow. Yeah. Well, what I do is because I have my own philanthropic charitable giving and then I have Little Pine. So I combine the two for more impact. So last year, Little Pine and I combined gave around $250,000 to animal rights organizations. And I'm hoping to do the same thing this year as well. Yeah, which is pretty cool. And, um, you know, like, like you said before, with uh, veganism being well represented in, in its virtual forms. I think I heard you mention once or twice that you you like creating things that can be downloaded, that you enjoy a business where you actually need to put in work regularly to to get results. Is this like your overall approach to, to work in general, just enjoying the, the everyday process that goes with it? Well, still most people know me as a musician. And I still love making records, but I don't expect anyone to buy the records that I make. I mean, it's 2017 and I'm 52 years old and I don't tour. So when I make a record, I'm just happy if anyone listens to it on Spotify. So for me, music is something I love, but not something I see as a business anymore. Um, I mean, some of my older songs still occasionally bring in some money, but because music for me is exclusively virtual and exclusively digital, it, there's no way for me to think of it as a revenue stream, which a lot of musicians find that very frustrating. I actually find that it keeps me honest in a way. The only way I could really do music as a viable revenue stream would be to make egregious compromises. And so I'd rather not compromise and just enjoy making music and not think of it as something I can make money from. But then when it comes to entrepreneurialism or investing, the truth is the, the tech world baffles me. Over the years, I've invested in tech companies, and sometimes they've worked out, and sometimes they haven't. But the problem is I have no idea why some have succeeded and some have failed. There are some great companies I've invested in that went bankrupt and then some mediocre companies who've done really well. So that has made me 
profoundly cautious when it comes to the tech space. Because like, I don't know why Facebook won and why MySpace lost. Like, I'm still just utterly baffled by that. You know, like, like I still don't know why VHS won and beta lost. I don't know why zip drives at the time won and SciQuest lost. So tech scares me and I invest in it, but very, very cautiously. And I'm much more of a fan of supermarkets and things that can't be downloaded. So, you know, Whole Foods and Kroger and companies like that really appeal to me a lot more than something that just exists in the tech space. Yeah, um, this one's going to be a bit off the cuff, but as a, I think, self-proclaimed sci-fi geek, is is there anything in the tech space that um, really excites you as a concept? Not so much as an investment possibility, but just the future possibilities. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it's a wonderful question, and it's a very different way of looking at it. You know, like, there are really two broadly different ways in which I or anyone can look at tech. One is as an investor. And as I said, as an investor, tech terrifies me as a, someone who likes to think about the future and who loves it on a theoretical level. Tech is fascinating. So we could talk for hours about, you know, what tech represents. I just have no way of evaluating how tech ideas translate into real world businesses. So, so to answer your question, when it comes to tech, really, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but everything is reduced to code, you know? And so, like, that's the lowest common denominator, or not even lowest, but just the common denominator of tech is code. How viably can you reduce something to code? And so the variables there are what is being reduced to code? You know, clearly things like music, books, movies, that's easy to reduce to code. But then other things become a little more complicated. But then we look at precedent. You look at like the, the mapping of the human genome. You know, they reduce the genome to code. And at first, that seemed like an absurd thing to even begin to try. And it was so expensive. And I remember when they first began mapping the human genome, it seemed like something that was going to take decades. And now you can kind of do it in a day and it costs very little. So in terms of paradigm shifting, that basically reductible aspect of like bringing things to their code that I still, I still don't think we understand it. And then even looking at DNA, like all life is also coded. And so theoretically and practically, I find that to be really, really fascinating. And also just as a side tangent, I was talking to some friends of mine about space travel and they were, because I've, I've worked with NASA on and off for years. And in NASA and in the world of space travel, there's this ongoing debate about manned versus unmanned space travel. And not to start fights, but I'm much more of a fan of unmanned space travel because it costs so much less and you can do much more with unmanned space travel. And I was having this debate with some friends at NASA who were advocating for manned space travel And I sort of said to them, I was like, well, if you want to hear an orchestra from Japan, you don't go to Japan to hear the orchestra. You listen to it on Spotify. Like, why would exploration be any different? Yeah, I get you. And 
I think we could definitely talk for hours about that. So before we return to um, the business questions, can I just ask you what you were doing at NASA? Oh, years ago, it must have been 2002, and I don't know how this happened. I got asked to give an inspirational talk to NASA astronauts and employees in Houston. And it felt really absurd because, you know, I was a philosophy major who dropped out of college. And there I am talking to astronauts. But that's pretty much what I said to them. I was like, you might feel dispirited sometimes because you work for a government agency. But keep in mind, you have the coolest job in the world and the undying love and respect of every person on the planet. And then over the years, I've done some creative projects with them and just have managed to sort of stay friends with a lot of the people who work in different facets, you know, whether it's at Jet Propulsion Laboratory or people doing odd things in New York or Houston. Well, that that's pretty cool. And um, I, I think it just ties really well with uh, my overall perception that I get of you, that you're just a guy who likes doing things that he he enjoys and that mean a lot to him. Is is it a fair assumption to say that this has been your kind of guiding motive in, in life? Or, or do you take a more measured, planned approach to, to the things that you do? Uh, I've never been very good at planning. And whenever I've tried to really plan, my you know there, there's that old truism, you know, that humans plan and God laughs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because as far as I can tell, I seem to lack omniscience. So my plans are always based on limited, flawed information and perspective. So, you know, think of that Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, where it's like really trusting to an extent, the power of informed intuition. Mm -hmm. And so part of our, the way in which we interact with the world is, you know, we try to be rational. We try to involve our prefrontal cortex, but we have three and a half billion years of evolution informing our perspective. And, you know, so that's coming from everything from pheromones to insights that happen in a trillionth of a second and to discount those i think would really be doing a disservice to just the neural architecture that we have after three and a half billion years yeah i get what you're talking about here and i, I like that term in informed intuition and you know of course the reason for all of these past questions apart from from nasa that was just for my own curiosity but it, it's been to give the listeners just a bit of an idea of what Moby's work ethics are like. Like, what, what can be learned from your success? Well, these days, basically, my life is guided by activism. Because I had a period, you know, I, I grew up very, very poor in Connecticut. And I assumed, like many people, that when I had success and made some money, that happiness would ensue. But for me and for most people, that proved to not be the case. You know, so at one point, 10, 15 years ago, I was having a lot of success. I'd made a lot of money and I was being really selfish. You know, at one point I had an assistant whose only job was throwing parties for me. And so I was drinking and doing drugs and being promiscuous and having these crazy parties. And the end result was sort of sadness and depression, the likes of which I'd never experienced. And so I realized that hedonism and selfishness, as attractive as they are, as compelling as they are, really 
they don't lead to happiness and well-being. So then I kind of took stock of my life and looked at the things that do lead to happiness and well-being. And for me, that tends to be, you know, activism, altruism, creativity, spirituality, and health. And so my focus for the last 10 years has been on, on those things. Also, you know, I wish we lived in a world where we could all be completely selfish, you know, but we don't live in that world. We live in a world that is an inch away from catastrophe. And, you know, we have all these doomsday apocalypse scenarios that are unfolding in front of us and that are largely self-generated. So if we don't all step up and do our best to change things, the world might be uninhabitable pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And of course, the um, activism definitely is something that gives life meaning and meaning as we can probably agree on is, is something that usually leads to happiness as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you've had this experience as well. Like I grew up in and around New York City, surrounded by people who work in finance. And what I've noticed, and now I live in L.A., surrounded by entertainment people. And the more selfish people are, and I don't say that in a judgmental or critical way, because I was way more selfish than anyone has ever been. But the more selfish people are, the more they're concerned with wealth and materialism, the less happy they are. And what I find is friends of mine who are very successful and love what they're working on and really want to make the world a better place and in their spare time focus on philanthropy and activism, like they're the happy ones. You know, the investment banker who's desperately trying to make more money than the next guy so he can buy a 2017 Ferrari, like that's the guy who tends to be miserable and, uh, and antidepressants. It's no longer sort of anecdotal, meaning it's no longer people saying like, oh, you should be philanthropic because it might make you happy. Like we actually have tons of evidence now supporting that idea. Yeah, it's like money can bring happiness, but it's definitely not, not a given an equation where more money equals more happiness. It's It's mostly what you're doing while you're making that money and then what you do with that money once you make it. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, like right now, I'm happy that I live in a house that I like, you know, and it's clean and it has good light and it's in a nice neighborhood. And I'm glad that I just had breakfast so my stomach is full and that if anything goes wrong, I can call my doctor or I can call a lawyer. Like that is all the product of having a little bit of money. And those things are nice. But as someone who tried to buy my way into happiness, a test that that absolutely doesn't work. You know, like, I mean, at one point I had this crazy compound in upstate New York and it was on 60 acres and the main house was 12,000 square feet and my bedroom suite was bigger than the house I grew up in. And we had a spa in the house and a disco in the house. And it was so over the top. And I've never been less happy living anywhere. Mm -hmm. And of course, what you're doing right now, um, we haven't even touched on it yet, but it's one of the main reasons that we're talking today is your activism in, in the upcoming Circle V Festival. 
Yeah, so I, I started this festival last year with um, my friend Tony Canal from No Doubt and also Nathan Runkle, who started uh, Mercy for Animals. And it's basically a music, food, art, animal rights festival. I'll be performing there. It's my only live show of 2017, and 100% of my fee goes to Mercy for Animals. And there are tons of other musicians and speakers. Um, the one thing I have to say is that you don't have to be a vegan or an animal activist to come to Circle V. You know, like if someone wants to go to In-N-Out Burger on the way to Circle V and just come and listen to the music, God bless. You know, like we're not going to judge anyone because they don't pass our ethical purity test. <laughs> so in what ways is this different? Or what is it that Circle V represents compared to other vegan festivals? Uh, I think part of it is the music. For example, my friend Nick Adler has a festival called Eat, Drink, Vegan. And Eat, Drink, Vegan is wonderful, but the focus is really on food. So they have some music, but the music is, you know, a, a small part of the festival. And with this, we have great food, but really the focus is very much on the music and the speakers. You know, if you look at the lineup, the bands and the musicians we have are really special. And then the speakers, you know, who are speaking on the panels is like it's just some of the best people in the sort of animal rights, animal activism movement. And I guess the other aspect that makes us unique is that we're a nonprofit. Any profits that are generated go to Mercy for Animals. So it's, again, you know, in keeping with that same sort of, call it like philanthropic entrepreneurialism, that I try to let that inform a lot of the things that I do. Yeah. Do you think there's a space and a need for more vegan events like this? Um speaking A, on, on the music front and, and B, on the um, philanthropic? Well, it's that question of what do we do with our limited resources? And because organizing a vegan music festival, it takes a lot of work. But I think we're willing to do it, one, because it generates money for Mercy for Animals, but also that it builds community and Again, because we all we spend most of our time in a virtual space, I think the power of physical space and the power of physical community can be really powerful. So, you know, vegans, animal activists who come to this festival and meet up with each other and feel like they're part of a movement, I think that can be really strong and powerful. And also non-vegans, non-animal activists coming and sort of being exposed to a world that they might not have a lot of experience with. Yeah. That's been my experience on, well, pretty much every vegan festival that I've visited. They're usually very inclusive and they are they're a good way to, to expose non-vegans to just the whole world that's there and, and waiting for them. So if this one goes well, and I can't really imagine why it shouldn't, what's next? Uh, well, we hope to do it every year. We're doing it November 18th here in Los Angeles, downtown. It's a good thing, but uh, tickets have already sold out. As you and I are talking, I think we still have a few more VIP tickets, but I assume by the time that you post this, all the tickets will be sold out. Um, we might try and add a second day. We're looking into the feasibility or the viability of that. So that's great that it's sold out. It just means that there are a lot of people who might not be able to come. And to your question, like what it means is, you know, next year, hopefully we'll do it again and it will be bigger. And then maybe at some point we try doing it in other cities or we take it on the road. 
you know, I think that we look at other festivals like the Warped Tour or Lollapalooza, you know, as, as examples of like what we'd like to sort of try and grow this into probably never being as big as either one of those, but the idea of just sort of like doing what we can to help it develop. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I really do. And, you know, since this one was about the future of Circle V and now the um, final question, since we are just slightly pressed for time, this is one that um, we ask of all our guests. If we're talking about the future, what's your best case scenario like both for the vegan movement and the planet that we live on? That's a wonderful question, and I'm going to try and not spend three hours answering it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you know, Cory Booker, he's a senator from New Jersey. Yeah. So Cory, when he was first elected senator, he's an old friend of mine, and we were having dinner, and we were talking about the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, which is, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And if you look at human history, we bend towards justice, but we also bend towards reason and evidence. It just takes us a while. So, I mean, you look at human history, like if we were doing this interview <clears throat> 1,500 years ago, the only people who had rights were kings and their offspring. And slowly over time, we extend rights to more and more people and more and more groups and more and more things. You know, we started talking about environmental rights, and now we're talking about animal rights. And slavery has largely been overturned everywhere in the world. When, when slavery was part of the status quo, the economy depended upon slavery. But somehow, humans overturned slavery against their own economic interest. And that is so encouraging. It means that even when it's hard, humans ultimately do the right thing. So, and I look at animal agriculture and the fact that it causes 45% of climate change and 90% of rainforest deforestation and 75% of antibiotic resistance and 50% of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, 60% of commercial water use, et cetera, etc. Not to mention the fact that 100 billion animals are killed by and for humans every year. So there's so many reasons for us to move past animal agriculture. And I feel like if we've done that with smoking on airplanes, we've done that with gay marriage, we've done that with women being able to vote, we've done that with slavery, like we've already done really hard, great things in the past it just means that we will figure this out. But the only question, and this regards other things as well, you know, like the sort of environmental apocalypse that we're causing, is it makes me think sort of, of like a drug addict. And like the drug addict will only get sober once they truly see and accept the consequences of their actions. But you hope that that happens before their actions kill them. Mm -hmm. You know, you hope that someone quits smoking before they get emphysema and lung cancer. So with humans, I just hope that we figure it out and we change our ways before the current status quo, the way in which we're doing things, kills us. At this point, I'd say it's 50-50, you know, because a lot of us want things to change, but yet change is not really happening. And I sadly think that it's going to take 
a lot of catastrophe for humans to wake up and start living more like evidence-based, especially drafting policy that's evidence-based. I just hope we don't get destroyed in the process. Yeah, I I hope so too. I hope that we just get a wake-up call or two and, and start moving towards um, justice and um, more rights. That was actually a very good answer. And I'm really interested what the three-hour version of it would sound like. But, um, <laughs> Basically now, just me repeating myself. For now, Moby, um, thank you very much for, um, for sharing that. And thank you for, for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks. Our Skype just started cutting out. So I guess that's the Skype gods telling us that we should uh, say goodbye. Yes. Well, thanks again for, for joining us today and looking forward to um, seeing more of you and, and Circle V in the future. Well, thanks. Yeah, it was a great pleasure talking with you. Yes, likewise. Have okay, a great bye. day. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Moby on episode 43 of the Plan-Based Entrepreneur Show. If you want to get more info on the things we talked about or read the interview transcript, you can find the show notes online, as always, at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com forward slash show forward slash episode 043. Of course, if you have anything else you want to share or ask or suggest, please email me directly on jerry at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com. And on that note, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's out there supporting what we do and letting us know about it. That wraps things up for today. Until next time, stay amazing and remember, the future is plant-based.